0: My, there you got my stories. Just ask a woman. Whoa. There you got my
1: stories. Troubles, troubles. There you got my stories. You are listening Just to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. Over a decade ago, Julie Bindell was the first to report on the so-called grooming gangs exploiting working-class girls in a number of towns in Northern England. Thousands of victims were sexually abused and sold to adult men, yet the police and the media didn't want to address it. Because the gangs were made up of Pakistani men, media and the authorities claimed they didn't want to touch the issue for fear of being accused of racism. Two recently released reports revealed social workers and the police in South Yorkshire and Greater Manchester knew girls were being abused and exploited, yet failed to take action. To learn more about the scandal and how such horrific crimes were able to slide under the radar for so long, I spoke with Julie Bindel, a journalist, author, and campaigner from her home in London. Here's an interview. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me about this today. I really appreciate it.
0: I'll always talk to you, Megan. It's a pleasure.
1: You first reported on these grooming gangs, as they're called, responsible for abusing girls in, in a number of towns in northern England back in 2008, I believe. How did you first hear about this story?
0: So the first report was in 2007, and I wrote this for the Sunday Times magazine. And in fact, I had said to the Guardian newspaper, which is the newspaper I mainly write for, do you want this story? It's about the age-old phenomena of men targeting vulnerable young women and making money from them and sexually exploiting them. But this happens to be very specific in terms of the demographics. And The Guardian said, no, we really shouldn't take this um, and run it as though it's a thing, because what you couldn't escape was the fact that the intelligence that was pieced together by mainly NGOs, women's charities, um, child protection NGOs, was that the perpetrators were largely of Pakistani Muslim origin and it was happening to white girls in northern towns and cities in England. Now, the reason why there was this particular demographic was not because, of course, Pakistani Muslims are more likely to abuse, to sexually abuse, to commit crimes, to commit sex crimes. It was because the young men who were disenfranchised within that workforce, affected by Margaret Thatcher, who had wrecked the trade unions, had um, closed down the coal mines, had pretty much smashed industry. The, The way that these young men had made money when they found themselves out of work was selling drugs. And that became too that became way too risky. So of course the, the demographic, that the young men that were already quite comfortable with committing crime, like lots of white men, like all of their white male counterparts, turned to a far less risky occupation. And merchandise that they saw was more lucrative, which was young girls, selling young girls. So the Guardian said no. The Guardian said we don't want to be seen as, quote, unquote, Islamophobic. And I think wrongly pushed it to one side. So I went to the Sunday Times and said, look, I'm known as a feminist on the left. I'm known as someone who's anti-racist. I certainly would not put down child sexual abuse and these kind of prostitution gangs to any kind of ethnicity or race on behalf of the perpetrators. I've never done that in all of my years of reporting. But something is telling me, I mean, the, the, the girls themselves, the parents of the victims and the charities that have been tracking this pattern, they were telling me that there's a reason why the police were not acting to stop these men from abusing the girls. And there were two reasons. One is because nobody cares about young girls who are being raped and sexually abused. We know this as feminists. They're seen as slags, as trash. These were all working class girls. Many of them were from broken and dysfunctional families. But also because the police really couldn't handle the hassle after 9-11 when the country was on hyper-vigilance, both in the US and the UK, about terrorism, and they could not handle the hassle of being accused of racism. They honestly didn't care, it wasn't that it would hurt them personally, or they would be desperately upset about it, but it would be a whole load of trouble to deal with in the context if they had been accused of targeting young Muslim men. The easiest thing for them, bearing in mind the sexism, the lack of concern for young sexually abused girls, was to just leave it alone and ignore the parents. But the Sunday Times said, oh, wow, really, is this happening? Um, Can you give us some evidence? Is it really an organised thing? And I said, yes, they're organised criminals. They have various layers and tiers. You know, young girls that approach their female counterparts at school, then a slightly older boy then young men with cars and vodka and marijuana. And yes, they are then passing these girls around in prostitution rings and making money. So once I was able to give them the evidence, we were able to expose it. And it was a year after that, that The Guardian did run a story from me, hinging on the disappearance of a young woman who had been, as it turned out, murdered by two men involved in these grooming gangs in another town close by to my regional report, ge- mm. Geography.
1: That, that's 14-year-old Charlene Downs? That's right. Right. Yeah, she disappeared from Blackpool in Lancashire.
0: And Blackpool has just actually been reported in the last few weeks that Blackpool is the worst place um, in the country, it, well, in the UK, for children. And we knew it was the worst place in, 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 in the country for girls, because of the endemic sexual abuse and in investigating the disappearance of Charlene Downs, we found that it's a seaside town with lots of amusement arcades, lots of children's activities and convicted and unconvicted child sex abusers, what you might call paedophiles, would gravitate towards these children's activities and, uh, and find their prey. This is where they look for their prey.
1: Yeah, you, so you reported that there were approximately 800 convicted high-risk sex offenders living in Blackpool. Then wh- why is that? It's so odd to me.
0: Because Blackpool is an impoverished town. It used to be a very vibrant holiday seaside town. I, as a child, when I'm 57, when I was in... I don't know, my my very early teens, would go with my family, a working-class family without much money, to spend time looking at the lights. There's incredible, they're called the Blackpool Lights that that come up at different times of the year, where they're kind of like fairy lights, like Christmas lights, Um, a seaside, which, of course, always attracts children. There are caravan parks. There are lots of low-rent bed and breakfast places. Lots of storefronts selling candy floss and ice cream, and and this, of course, was very attractive to low-income, working-class kids like myself. And then gradually, of course, working-class people with cheaper travel travelled more abroad, travelled more to, um, to to mainland Europe to chase the sunshine because our weather is notoriously bad, as I'm sure your listeners know, and the place went to rack and ruin. And also it became notorious for single dwelling, single parent, in other words, single moms accommodation, because a lot of the bed and breakfast facilities changed over. They were no longer the holidaymakers. So they then became the type of places that young women with their kids who were on um, benefits having no additional income, would would go to live. And so the kids were very vulnerable because the women would have to work and the kids were left alone a lot. And men had, I suppose, got into the habit of telling each other in prison that Blackpool was a great place to go if you were looking for vulnerable kids. And that's how it built up.
1: Was anyone else reporting on this at the time when you, when you published this story?
0: No. Um, there was... Some really good local journalists. One in particular, Ben Rossington, who wrote for um, a Blackpool, a local Blackpool paper, who is now he, he he's on the national press doing some really good crime reporting. And I found some some local media about Charlene. He had clearly gone round to the house, talked to the parents, talked to the neighbours, the police, and the like, and he'd built up some really good intelligence. But he didn't have much space in the local newspaper. We don't really have local newspapers anymore. When I reported on this, um, you know, 13 years ago, they, they still existed, but only just. So I sent Ben an email and said who I was, and I was writing for The Guardian, and I really wanted to find out more about it, and I was aware that he had done all the legwork and a lot of the hard work. But if we could help each other, that would be really great. And he just sent me what he had. He was really, really helpful. It was really in the spirit of collaboration. I'm so grateful to him. And I then kept him informed with all of the stuff that was coming in to me that might be helpful for him as a local reporter. But no, there was nobody else. And in fact, what was happening, which was really disturbing, and this is why I was very, very frustrated with The Guardian in 2007 when they turned down my investigation on the actual phenomena itself was that the far right, the British National Front, the likes of um, you know, the racist groups that were around at the time were the ones that wanted to own the problem. What they were saying was, look at these bloody Pakistanis. Look at these immigrants abusing our girls, meaning white, meaning indigenous, British-born. Mm. Um, They're doing this because they're Muslim scum. The police don't care about this because they are under the cosh of political correctness. None of this was true, of course. But if you were a racist or if you were vulnerable to that message because you were a parent of these girls and the police really were doing nothing to help you, then you could be dragged along with this racist narrative where you believed that actually these men were abusing girls because they were Pakistani and because the girls were white, not because these men were making money from vulnerable victims of any ethnicity. So the reporting was mainly on the websites of these far-right lunatics. And then, of course, further down the line, that was further... Uh, abused and exploited um, by the English Defence League, the EDL and the character Tommy Robinson um, who is a racist and doesn't give a damn about women and girls or sexual violence has in fact a conviction for domestic violence against uh, his former partner who who further exploited that message and really pulled quite a few regular citizens into the notion that girls are safe as long as they're with white men in their own homes Mm. but if these Pakistanis come along then they might be dragged into a grooming gang. I mean the absolute opposite of what was going on on a national scale.
1: What, What was it that sort of finally got the police to start paying attention and trying to to do something about this problem?
0: Well three things I think. One the parents of the young women who went for support to an amazing organization called Coalition for the Removal of Pimping, CROP, set up in the 1990s by a woman called Irene Iverson, whose daughter Fiona had been groomed into prostitution and murdered when she was 17 years old. And she realized that there was really very little support for the parents and that the police weren't listening to them. Parents would be going to the police and giving them registration, car numbers and all kinds of intelligence, messages from mobile phones and the like, Um, ID from sightings of the perpetrators, but the police just really didn't care. And of course, following on from that were some of the young women who'd been abused, those that could articulate their abuse, that had not been completely destroyed, were also speaking out, so therefore, there were strong young women who were saying, you let us down, we reported these men, we were gang raped, we were sold from from apartments and from cars and from street corners, and you did nothing, and our abusers are still out there. So that was one key thing. The second thing was, I think, the growth of the far right, the kind of rise of the Tommy Robinson racist lot. The fact that the police had shut down discussion of this earlier on, when I tried to write about this in 2004-05, the then Chief Constable of West Yorkshire, a huge police division in England, Colin Cramporn, had said, we can't possibly have this issue in the public eye. A documentary had been made about grooming gangs because it would start a quote-unquote race riot so they they knew that the the, the racist sentiment of some of the, the the white people that normally wouldn't give a toss about girls and young women being raped was riding high. It was their opportunity to have a go at the Muslim influx, as they called it. And you know, there's always been a terrible racism towards some of the Pakistani community, or in fact, you know, just you know, my, migration from you know, the whole region of you know, the Indian subcontinent and, and further beyond where terribly derogative terms are used, such as Paki, because this was one of the first groups, Pakistani was one of the first groups of people that migrated to the UK that was then recognised by by the people that then turned upon them. And so that was the second reason. And then the third reason was, I think that some of the press, and I'd love to think that, I kick started this. I doubt it. I was a wheel, you know, I was a cog in a wheel. But when the national press kicked off about this and other journalists started to report on it without the fear of being accused of racism, because I'd published a whole big spread in the Sunday Times, followed by a spread in the Guardian, and they knew I was of the left and they knew I was totally condemning of of the racist undertones of this, then I think that people became more bold and brave. And it wasn't just the racists that came out to shout about it. It was the other people, the the Muslim women and men, the left-wing and liberal people, some of the survivors of this horror, and not just the far right who were using it for their own ends. And there was another really important issue, which was a police officer called Maggie Oliver, who became a whistleblower when she saw from her own eyes as a police officer dealing with the fallout of these horrible crimes by speaking with some of the victims who walked out of the job and who spoke out publicly about the disgraceful police conduct around these investigations
1: Right. And and I mean, of course, the reason why this all is in the news right now is because there's been this, there was a five year investigation conducted by the IOPC that found that, that the police were too scared to take action against these men for, as you say, you know, fear of being labeled racist, um, triggering unrest, as they say. Do you think... That the police continue to ignore crimes against girls and women today for similar reasons, is this still going on?
0: Yes, they do still ignore crimes against women and girls. It's still going on. I'd love to think lessons have been learned. But as we found with the recent inquiry into the Manchester grooming gangs. And and you know, these these gangs, whether it's Manchester or Rotherham or Rochdale or Telford or wherever. They involve thousands of girls, thousands of ruined lives. They, they have not learned lessons because, in fact, the police and the Crown Prosecution Service probably in particular still really don't care very much at all about sexual violence. Still don't want the bother of the paperwork. Still don't want the bother of the court case and the witness protection and going through the hundreds of hours of evidence that this would entail. And don't want the general public to see how endemic child sexual abuse is, and rape in general is. And also, they're really reluctant, the police and other criminal justice agencies, to uncover the evidence that would show conclusively that this is organised crime, that this is not just the odd man who's a bit off-kilter, who's a little bit desperate or weird or a bit out of control. This is endemic. It's a pandemic. And it's like, I suppose, in Canada with the the, the, the Murder of Missing Women inquiry,
1: mm-hmm. with
0: all of the indigenous women, prostituted women, impoverished women, women who've suffered horrendous racism and abuse from the state and from its citizens. This is not, you know, a case-by-case situation. This runs through a society and a country like a thread. You can't possibly say that this isn't something that we have known about for decades and decades and decades. And lessons haven't been learned. You know, the inquiry comes from Rochdale, from Rotherham, brave former police officers, whistleblowers like Maggie Oliver speak out. Young women like Um, You know, Sammy Woodhouse, one of the, the victims who's written a book and who now educates people about how she was ensnared in grooming gangs and let down by police, they speak out. We've had BBC documentaries and dramas on what went wrong with these investigations. And still we see that the young women are treated like troublesome slags. And this is because of misogyny. And it's not because the police think, oh, well, we don't arrest these men because they're Pakistani and we'll get told that we're racist, but we would go and arrest them if we were white, if they were white, rather. Mm. It's not that. It's that the Pakistani element of this gives them a really good excuse to keep their tra- crime figures down. So, for example, if you have 9-11, if you have terrorist attacks or, or suspected terrorism attacks, and al-Qaeda is blamed or, or, or whichever, whichever group um, you know the, 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 the government at the moment is blaming. And then your figures of arrests of young Muslim men spike really highly. That doesn't really look very good for you, does it? Mm. Because rightly so, civil rights groups, human rights groups, those that are looking very critically at the fact that our police and other criminal justice system agencies, are pulling young Muslim men. Uh, aside at airports, in city centres, on the underground, wrongly arresting them, wrongly convicting them, even in the case of John Charles de Menezes in London uh, some 15 odd years ago, shooting them dead, mistaken identity. You know, that doesn't look good. So it's all about public image. It's not because they really care about being labelled racist. It's that they don't want the aggravation that comes with yet another inquiry about racism or Islamophobia. Whereas with women and girls, we don't count. We're always going to get raped and murdered. We're always going to have child sexual abuse. That's the way they see it. But it's not the way that the victims and the survivors of these grooming gangs see it. And it's not the way those of us investigating this from a feminist perspective see it. We know there's a pattern, and that pattern is misogyny.
1: And do you think, I mean, I'm just, I'm just wondering, I don't, I don't know for sure, but do you think that some of this has to do with a normalization of prostitution so that maybe, you know, people, the police aren't seeing it and probably society at large aren't seeing it as child sexual exploitation, but are just seeing it as a problem of prostitution, which maybe they don't really see as a problem at all. I think you've
0: absolutely got it there, Megan. I think that's really really key to this whole issue because the idea that these 13 14 year old girls were being sold to men means that many many men were actually willing to in fact enthusiastically engaged with seeking out sex with children now the average age of these girls as they were ensnared into these gangs were 13 and some were younger of course um, and some were a little older but extremely vulnerable And many had arrested development, some were learning disabled, some were from care homes and institutions. And of course, many of them, not all, but many had been groomed into um, sexual abuse at an earlier age within the family or within institutions. So it's a perfect way to make money from these girls. Now, when this started being reported more widely, after I published my Sunday Times piece, I railed against the euphemisms that were being used. And I said, look, grooming is something that, you know, I do for about seven minutes in the morning when I dry my hair and, you know, put on some ironed clothes, right? Mm -hmm. Grooming is an absolute euphemism for rape and torture and prostitution. And although I'll still use it to kind of describe a particular type of sexual abuse, and commercial sexual exploitation, I always get the term prostitution in there because this this was a business. These young men had been selling heroin, and that became too risky, so they were selling girls. But let's have a look at who they were selling them to. So if you have a thirteen year old in an apartment in a city or a town in northern England taken away from her home and she's in a bedroom with you know a sandwich, an apple, a banana, and a glass of water. And that's where she remains for 12 hours. How many men go through that room and rape her and pay the pimp who's brought her there? So why do men want to have sex with children? Why why are they willing to pay for it? And this is a question that we as a society rarely ask, feminists have asked it. Feminists have asked it for a long, long time. The very, very first book, Looking, at child sexual abuse within the home, for example, was written, you know, way, way back in the 1960s. But I think what we're doing now is we're disguising what's happening to these girls as though there are a few weirdo men that run takeaway shops. They're Muslim, so therefore they have a terrible view of women and they're used to seeing them as chattel. um, Quote, unquote, these men often marry girls of about 13. Anyway, you know, I've heard the most ridiculous, uh, the racist tropes coming out about this, when we all know child sexual abuse is endemic amongst all white cultures within the West and we know that girls are, mainly, are more likely to be sexually abused in the home, including being prostituted out. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you look at Charlene Downes, the investigation I did into the 14-year-old missing girl in Blackpool, what I discovered after the report went into the Guardian was that her father had been selling her, selling access to Charlene to men in his local bar for 20 quid a time. So he would go into the bar. His friends or whoever his associates were came up and said, you know, is your Charlene in? And he'd say, well, buy us a few drinks. And 20 pounds would go into the father's top pocket and these men would go home the father and rape his daughter now that's why she ended up running into the arms of these abusers that put her on the streets and sold her to other men mm-hmm. so that's where it starts off and that's where we need to look why are girls prostituted by men and why are men willing to buy them
1: mm-hmm. Have any of these men, any of the men, you know, involved in these grooming gangs, as they're called, have, have any of them been finally held accountable? You know, was anyone charged for, for uh, Charlene's murder, for example?
0: Well, with Charlene, no. Um, that is an ongoing inquiry. I went to the trial of two men who were arrested and charged with, with her murder, and there was no body ever found. And um, the police did a terrible job. They sent in undercover cops and had um, sound surveillance. So they had recordings, secret recordings of the two men talking. And it just wasn't done very well. And the men actually not only ended up getting acquitted, but they got huge amounts of compensation for being wrongly arrested and charged. Mm. Now we can all have our own views about uh, whether those those men uh, were were culpable or not. But, but no, the police messed up that investigation. Yes, there have been men on trial for these crimes, and we can thank some of the survivors for that more than we can thank the vast majority of the police or the Crown Prosecution Service. Mm. So, Sammy Woodhouse, I would really recommend to your listeners, please look her up, follow her on Twitter, send her a message of thanks and support. We gave her the Emma Humphreys Memorial Prize last year for the work that she's done in fighting against this endemic child sexual abuse horror story and for standing up as a survivor who herself had gone through hell reporting her rapist to the police. Unbelievably, the man who actually ran her sexual exploitation, the one who pimped her out and who was pretty much at the helm of what happened to Sammy, fathered a child with her and she had the child. And from prison, this man was told by social services that he could apply for access to that child. Wow. Oh, yes. And Sammy, because she's an absolute, you would not mess with Sammy, she decided to take on her local authority and say, no, 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 this is never happening to a woman who has borne a child through rape. This is never happening to that child either. Mm-hmm. And started off an entire campaign to expose which local authorities have this policy and to get that policy taken right off the, the statute. And, and there are other women like Sammy. There are women like Fiona Broadfoot, who you know, is a survivor um, who many of you will have heard of, a British woman mm. who was pimped and abused not by grooming gangs, but who works now with the victims of grooming gangs. Now that this has become such a moneymaker, such a good commercial you know, industry. And so we have a lot to thank those women for. And of course, some lawyers that work with the women. And as I've said before, mentioned her a couple of times, Maggie Oliver. Have a look at Maggie Oliver. She's an inspiration to any police officer and to any woman who wants to expose the truth when the truth is being buried.
1: Is this still going on in these towns? Are these, these grooming gangs still operating?
0: Yes, these, these grooming gangs are still operating because there's endemic prostitution of children and young women, mm-hmm. because there are many men who wish to pay for access to the inside of a, a child or woman's body. And because police officers are told they have different targets, that there are bigger fish to fry, Obviously, many of these these girls, not all, but many of them are working class, are the forgotten kids, institutionalized, particularly vulnerable, and therefore fair game, the forgotten, the disposable. And it's happening because there is no particular will in this country right now to go after the rapists and the pimps and prosecute them and send a message to all of those potential pimps and rapists that this is not going to bode well for you if you do this. At the moment, we pretty much have an amnesty on men who choose to sexually abuse and prostitute girls and women.
1: This is a very big question, I realize, but is there anything that can and should be done, I mean, in terms of maybe changing laws or policies or you know is there anything that can be done in terms of prostitution laws for example to to address this problem i mean i think people probably feel like this is such a it's such a horrible endemic problem and and people start to feel hopeless or helpless i mm. think yeah and that's a good point
0: megan because obviously that's the last thing that we want we're here to find solutions aren't we feminists want to want to change this we want to end The abuse of women and girls and we don't believe that boys are born programmed to do this stuff it's the last thing that we believe we know that socialization uh, of a group of people with power handed to them in this case because they're born with a penis you know is is the problem and then the complacency with which the authorities and other members of the public deal with this Obviously, this has a lot to do with the status afforded to young working class girls, but not just working class girls, all girls. Some of the victims of grooming gangs were young women of colour. They weren't all white women. This This is not an issue of race and ethnicity. It's an issue of misogyny and of sexual violence. There are different demographics everywhere. So we need to stop looking at, for example, Pakistani Muslim men as a problem, and that if we can actually educate that community, all of a sudden this problem will go away. It won't, because these abusers are grown in every single community. So we need to look at funding and enabling the kind of projects like that that Fiona Broadfoot is running, Build a Girl. Again, you can can look this up, where work with young women is about giving self-esteem and hope to young women, to tell young women that they are worth a damn sight more than having to go off and do a blow job for a bag of French fries or a bottle of vodka or a cigarette. But more than that, we need to come down heavily on these abusers. We need to make sure that men know that anyone that wants sexual access with a child is likely to end up in jail. Mm-hmm that they will be condemned by their community, that that, that they will be publicised, that their, their name will be something like on a billboard, like their worst nightmare. We need to make sure that the police are held accountable every time there is a botched investigation into one of these sex abuse rings. And we need to ask questions as to why our prosecutors are more likely to ignore these cases of child rapists, for God's sake, dangerous, dangerous men who will never stop doing this until they are caught, mm-hmm. of why they're so complacent about this and why they're more likely to put their efforts into botched counter-terrorism jobs and, and house burglaries and bicycle thefts. And of course, feminists need to be outside the court shouting and waving placards and screaming through loudhailers, every single time these cases fall and these men walk free. We do not need racists like Tommy Robinson to start shouting about Pakistani men and making this into a race issue. We need to highlight the fact that for girls, this is an absolute nightmare that we have been enduring for a long time and we've been fighting against since feminism, because this is about misogyny, not about race.
1: Thank you so much for talking with me about this today, and thank you so much for your reporting and all your work on this issue. It's really incredible and, and important.
0: Thank you so much, Megan, for everything that you do.
1: You just heard an interview with Julie Bindel, a journalist, author, and feminist activist. Her reporting on the grooming gangs can be found in The Times and The Guardian. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at Feminist Current, or send us an email at infofeministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libson, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen itunes google play stitcher pocketcast Casts, TuneIn, spotify and beyond you can even give us five stars and a review on itunes show the world radical feminism is worth listening to feminist current is produced and hosted by myself megan murphy out of vancouver bc if you enjoyed this podcast consider making a donation to support our work just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button